We're looking today at Ezra, Ezra, but we're going to look at the last two verses of Chronicles, which is the book right prior to Ezra, Ezra chapter 1. I heard about a little boy that went to the local grocery store and went to get some laundry detergent. He said to the grocer, I need laundry detergent. He said, what for? He said, I'm going to wash my dog. The guy said, that's going to be hard to, to use on your dog. It might, you know, harm him. That's strong soap. Well, the boy's determined. He got the laundry detergent. About a week later, went back to the store, and the grocer said, how did that turn out? He said, well, washing the dog was fine, but the rinse cycle drowned him. <laughs> oh, boy. Several temples in Scripture we know of. Remember... The first temple built by Solomon a thousand and five years before Christ. And we know that when the second one was built, Haggai says the people wept because it wasn't quite as big. But after the captivity of Babylon, when the children of Israel returned home, they built another temple. Zerubbabel was the leader of that temple. And that temple lasted all the way until 70 A.D., so that was 536 to 70 A.D., about 600 years. But about 20 years before Christ, Herod uh, took the throne. Uh, actually, he was an Edomite, descendant of Esau, and the Edomites were not good. Uh, Esau hated his twin brother. You know the story. And Edomites weren't good. And he was an Edomite uh, who controlled the Jews under the, the authority excuse me, of Rome. And we know that um, he, he was called Herod the Great, not because he was a great person, but because he was a great builder. And he really beautified the temple. And then in 70 AD, the Romans came in and destroyed it. And we, we know that really there, you can say there's been two temples or three temples, if you call Herod's temple a third one, but really it was just a beautification and an, an enlargement of Zerubbabel's. And then we'll have a tribulation temple. Because in the mid-trib, the, the abomination of desolation will take place. That means the Antichrist will come in and defile it, and that it'll anger God, and that temple will be destroyed as well, and then there'll be a millennial temple where we'll hear Jesus teach for a thousand years. So we've had uh, between four, and we'll have four or five total temples. Today we're looking at Ezra, a great book, and uh, we know that Ezra and Nehemiah were originally one book called the book of Ezra. And in the 15th century, actually 1446 years, 1446 years before Christ, we know they were divided. A, or a Christian by the name of Origen divided them in the Latin Bible, and then the English translators kept them divided in the English translation. So let's read 2 Chronicles chapter 36. Find that stand right before Ezra chapter 1, 36, 22, and 23. When you find that, stand, and you'll notice something. You can read with me from Ezra 1 or 2 Chronicles uh, 36, 22, and 23, because they are identical. And we're going to read verse 22. It says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the, that the word of the Lord, <clears throat> spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah, might be accomplished. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put all, it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, 
king of Persia. All the kingdoms of the earth hath the Lord God of heaven given me, and he hath charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. And you notice, I read the same exact verses, Ezra 1, 1 and 2, or the same as what we just read in Chronicles, because Ezra was the author of both. Let's pray. God bless us as we take a look in your book for a walk in the world. That will glean something, Lord, some handfuls on purpose that will help us, that will learn about you today. We'll be able to make an application to our life. God, most of all, that you'll be glorified in everything I say, that this church service is totally yours. Bless now. Hide me behind the cross. I don't deserve to be up here, God, but you're so gracious and merciful to use me this morning. I pray you do in a mighty way in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Ezra, <clears throat> what an example he was, spiritually and his social reforms as, he, as they returned to the land. You can read about his leadership in chapter 7 through 10. Shortly after rejoicing and returning uh, and, and beginning the, the construction of the temple, Ezra noticed that the Jews were now marrying the heathen people, the lost people. And it wasn't wrong because they were different nations, but it was wrong because they weren't believers in Yahweh, the, the Lord of, of God, of the Old Testament. Uh, same as the God of the New, by the way, because the I am of the Old we know to be Jesus. But we know this was a violation of the covenant, and the covenant and the law, and it would create idolatry and apostasy. And so he was upset about it, and he stood up and did the right thing. He preached. He was a Bible expositor. He taught Scripture. He was a scribe. He was a priest. A scribe in those days wrote Scripture. In the New Testament era, the scribes didn't write much Scripture. They're mostly lawyers, and most of them were against the Lord. We know the scribes and Pharisees, Sadducees, were against the Lord. Sadducees, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. Sad, you see. And so we know the scribes back then were a little better and more involved in Scripture. And so uh, the people really rallied and, and followed his leadership, his preaching and leadership. And in chapter 2, you have a list of names of people who got rid of their pagan spouses. Now today, the New Testament teaches something different. And the Old Testament never taught them to uh, do away with their marriages, but they did it out of loyalty to God. They felt it was the right thing. But what does Paul say in Corinthians? If you marry an unbeliever and they are content to live with you and to be married to you, then you stay with them. You can't just go and divorce them because they're not believers. To become equally yoked, if you're unequally yoked, you have to stay unequally yoked. And so that's why we tell people it's important to choose who you marry and choose wisely because you want to be married to a believer. You want to be equally yoked. But these people were so dedicated, and, and, and they followed his leadership. And Ezra enlisted really trustworthy men and, and surrounded himself with good people. In Okinawa, we had a great church because I had great people around me. I had a great staff, great deacons, aged saints. Everything around me was just great. And God just blessed that because I had good people, and I'm always thankful to have good people. Hey, he was... Sacred in his task, and he was humble. He was a man of prayer, according to chapter 7. And we know he was everything a man should be, and you can't say that about many men. And his authenticity has been confirmed by seven outside documents. Think of this. One in Hebrew and six in Aramaic that confirmed the writings of Ezra. Isn't that something? 
And did you know the decree of Cyrus is in a museum in England today? And that's something. And here's a man that Isaiah referred to 170 years before he was even born, 150 years before he reigned. Look with me, if you will, at Isaiah, and I'm ahead of myself, but Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah chapter 44, just so you see this, mark this in your Bible. I did reference, reference this another, at another time, but I'd like you to mark your Bibles and just notice that 150 years uh, prior to his, his, 170 years prior to his birth, Isaiah writes and names this man. And that's baffling to skeptics because how would Isaiah have known about Cyrus before Cyrus even existed? And that just shows you the handiwork of God. And history proves the time of writing of the scroll of Isaiah and the time of writing of the decree of Cyrus and Cyrus' life. And so we rejoice in that great point of hermeneutics if you want to know the, the in-depth word. But in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28, Thus saith Cyrus, there's his mention right there. The last line of that verse is, Thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. And then verse 45.1, remember it's a scroll. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus. Mentioned in the Bible. Now Jeremiah prophesied of this in two portions, Jeremiah 25 and Jeremiah 29. And so clearly scripture lays this out beforehand. And it's so great to see that in the Bible. I love that. I don't need that. I live by faith. I need the Word of God, but I don't need, you know, for them to discover something with archaeology to prove to me God is real because God lives in my heart. Uh, but, but it's sure nice to open your Bible and say, wow, what can they say about that? The critics have to admit it is bizarre, and they would say it's coincidental. Was it coincidental that Cyrus decides to let the Jews return? His ego wanted to be uh, buffed. He wanted to, for people to say, oh, he's good to his subjects, so I'll let them go build their temple. No, it was God's sovereignty. Cyrus was doing it probably to promote himself. But God is always sovereign in the affairs of men. And remember the events. Remember, the Assyrians had already defeated the northern kingdom, and then the Babylonians defeat uh, Israel or Judah and Jerusalem falls. It's surrounded. It falls. And then the Medes and the Persians come in and beat, defeat Babylon. So Cyrus gave a decree, but it was Darius the Mede that eventually said, you know, we give you, Ezra, the authorization to do the work. And, of course, Cyrus' decree permitted the return. Joshua and Zerubbabel led the first group of 50 thousand people. Now, most of them are from Benjamin, Judah, and some from the tribe of Levi. Now, remember the tribe of Levi, portions of the Levi, Levitical tribe, were in every one of the 12 territories of Israel. Remember the patriarchs, each had a slice of land. But the Levites were everywhere. Uh, they were the, the leadership spiritually in every tribe. And so the Levites from the tribe of Benjamin and Judah came back to restore the temple, to rebuild the temple. And we know that was allowed because of the decree of Cyrus. The northern kingdom is referred to oftentimes as the lost tribes of Israel. Uh, they lost their identity, but we do know in the New Testament, Anne is referred to as being from the tribe of Asher. Acts refers to the 12 tribes, so God knows who they are. The Jews don't know what tribe they're from, but God does. 
And they'll all return someday, and they began to return in 1948. And so we look at several things. There are three different times where they return. We said 50,000 was 49,697 in Scripture. And so Ezra brought this group back, and then uh, the book of Esther fits between the first and second group. And what a great story that is. But there's 60 years in between. And that's when Esther's book is written. Those events took place. And then we find that Ezra, Zerubbabel led the first group, Zerubbabel and Joshua, the high priest. The next group, we know Ezra led 1,758. And finally, Nehemiah led an unknown number of people back. So there were three different returns of Jews to the Holy Land. And the decree of Cyrus allowed them to return. Uh, he wanted the loyal subjects, but I like Proverbs 27 or 21.1. God turns the king's heart, and I'll paraphrase it, in any direction he chooses. Remember that, Proverbs 21.1. God turns the king's heart any way he chooses. Are you aware that when we vote and then we get frustrated because the person we think should be in isn't in? Do you realize God's sovereign? And do you realize God can, man, can manipulate our leadership in their decision-making? And you say, well, some of their decisions are terrible. God allows for it. I don't know why. Maybe Jesus is coming back. I'd like that. Come, Lord, come quickly. But he allows for it. And uh, I'm supposed to pray for my president, and I'm not supposed to speak evil of anyone. And so I pray for him. And then I'm disappointed in so many decisions, but I, I pray for our leaders. And I've said that a lot recently because I know that people are troubled by what's going on in our country. While I'm troubled about it, I'm also trusting about it. Because I trust in the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so these Jews are named and these tribes are named and they took this 840 mile journey. Can you imagine that? Honey, pack the Winnebag hole. We're going to travel to Jerusalem, and gas is kind of high. You know, uh, you know Nebuchadnezzar and, and Cyrus and Darius, they've really jacked the prices of gas because they're foolish decisions, and we've got to go 840 miles because we've got to work on the house of God. So they pack up, and they move. We'll get three th several things today. In the first three verses, the building command. Jeremiah prophesied it. Isaiah referred to uh, the decree of Cyrus, and of course, God ordained it. So the Jews, first referred to as Jews in Jeremiah 7, that's really where the name came from. The word Jew is from the tribe of Judah. So the Jews are packing up and they're going to move because God said, let's build. And Cyrus realized God was somehow God. And he put this in writing that they could return to the land and later they would build. But you think of the command to build in these two verses. He mentioned here Jeremiah, and that it might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. So who controlled Cyrus? The Lord. The Lord controlled. And the command is to build. And this was an important thing to build the house of God. Now let me say something that's practical and something that bothers me today, so many times I'll hear preachers preach from Ezra and Nehemiah, which we'll look at next week. And they preach about the church building and they compare the church building with the temple. And I, there's a real problem here. Because the temple was where God dwelt. He was in the ark. 
He was in the most holy place. And that place was the place of God, the house of God, and it had to be built. This is just a building. Do you know what's holy here today? You are. Because you are the temple of God. You can't compare the two. Just like you can't compare Israel and the church. The church is distinct from Israel. Israel was a chosen nation. America's not a chosen nation. I thank God God blessed us. I thank God for our Constitution and the freedom we have. But you can't compare America with Israel or the church with Israel. The church is distinct from Israel. But so many times I hear people talk about the church building. And all oh, the holy church building. Years ago, and someone in our choir carried a Diet Coke up to the choir. And oh, some people were upset. Some people were really upset. A Diet Coke in the choir. Now, we don't want refreshments in our auditorium. I understand that. we got to take care of this. We've invested tithes and offerings in this building. But remember, the early churches didn't even have buildings. They met in homes. I think this would be a very large congregation in the early New Testament church in those little homes. But, you know, the Diet Coke thing, of course, we didn't want drinks in the auditorium. That's wise. This is not a sanctuary, by the way. This is just an auditorium. This is not a temple. This is just a building. You're the temple. But people were upset. And so I addressed it in the pulpit. And I said, how many of you concerned about, you know, this place and defiling this place? And a lot of them were really gung-ho. I mean, military people are great to pastor because, boy, they're gung-ho. You know, the chain of command and the pastor, he's our general, and all that other malarkey is what I call it because the pastor's not a general. But I, I, I got, I, I, I really was wrong, and I, not wrong, but I mean, I just sort of deceived them. And they said, yeah, we don't like it. And I said, but what do you put in your body? It got as quiet, Harold, right? You couldn't hear a pin drop. They were amening. Don't bring a Diet Coke. In the house of God, if you put anything in your body you want to, now what's worse? Huh? What's worse? We know the answer to that, you know. Your body is God's temple. That's why our body should be used to consecrate it to God and be used for his glory in everything we do. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, present your bodies a living sacrifice to God. Don't ruin your bodies. Take care of your bodies as best you can. Don't put too much in them. You know, I, uh, I've been off sugars for about four weeks now. I hadn't had a pie, a cake, cookie. It's killing me. It's killing me. I drive by, you know, I hear the little Debbies calling out. They want to renew the affair uh, uh, they've had with me all those years, the affair of me and little Debbie. And, and uh, it's so hard because I love the junk food. I mean, I'm going to get to heaven. I'm going to say, Lord, can you ask, can I ask you a question? Why did you mean make green beans taste the way they do? And then little Debbie's taste the way they do, and you want me to eat the green beans? <laughs> you know, uh, we don't understand that. But, of course, the little Debbie's are a product of man. And, but they still do come from sugar, and that's God's and all that stuff. But the fact of the matter is, we are the temple. We are the temple. And so we need to uh, offer our bodies to God and to take care of them as best we can. But notice the, the command to build. It was the first year of Cyrus. 583, God begins to speak to Cyrus. And he says, 
We can, we can build. And the word the phrase there, God of heaven, is used is more in Ezra than any other book because God is the God of heaven. But notice the willing offering, verse 4. And whosoever remaineth in any place where he sojourneth, here's the people who couldn't travel. Here's the people that had to stay behind. Let the men of this place help him with silver and gold. Those that can't work, those that can't travel, help them to give. And look what it says. They give a willing, a free will offering. A willing offering. A free will offering is a willing offering. You say, preacher, you haven't preached on tithing. You've been here a year and a half or something. I haven't, but when God lays it in my heart, I will. It'll be from a passage. It won't be just jumping all over the place. And I'll preach on that, but I can certainly preach on giving because that is part of the passage. And it's one thing to have cirrhosis of the liver, another thing to have cirrhosis of the giver. You know, Paul said to give cheerfully. And you know the Greek word there, I've taught you that. It's the word hilarion. What word comes from that? Hilarious. I want people here who give because they love giving. I don't want you to feel, oh, we're going to give, or pastor's going to get on our case, and he's going to look at our tithe records. No. I'm not going to look at your giving. I don't want to know what you give. I don't want to know who gives or what. In fact, Jesus exaggerates. He uses a hyperbole and says, let not your right hand know what your left hand doeth. Giving's in secret. I don't want to know it, but I want you, when you do give, to give because you love to, and you're cheerful and excited about it because you're giving to God, and you know you're investing in heaven. You know God's going to bless you eternally for your investment. Think about the fact, and we don't think like this very often, but we get to heaven, and we meet people who are saved because we sent a missionary, or we meet people who are saved because... You know, we gave to something, and that was a cause of them coming to Christ. Even if it's people who come here and be, become Christians, that, the Bible says, that fruit is on our account. I like that accounting. Did you know that accounting is, is biblical? Philippians chapter 4. And so here we have this willing offering. Verse 4, they a free will offering. Look at verse 6. Verse 6. <clears throat> chapter 1, verse 6. It says here, the Bible says in the last line, besides all that was willingly offered. Willingly offered. And then we look at chapter 2 and verse 68, after the list of all those names, 268, it says, And some of the chief of the fathers, when they came to the house of the Lord, which was at Jerusalem, offered freely for the house of God to set it up in its place. These people gave and gave and gave, and they loved giving. And they built the house of God. So there wasn't just a building command. There was a willing offering. Then chapter 3 and verse 1, and I like this. You've got to see this. Because the unity of the people here. And this stands out to me. Churches that are in unity are churches that please the Lord. In John 17, Jesus' last prayer, he said, Father, I pray that they would be one. What does that mean? They would be in unity. That was his last prayer on earth. I call that the high priestly prayer. We should say that's the Lord's prayer. We've given the prayer, the Lord's prayer title to another passage. But that's the greatest prayer in Scripture. Read Jesus' prayer in John 17. He prays for others. He prays for himself last. But he prays for future generations of believers to be one, and yet we have all the division today. And division is the word schism, the Greek word. 
which means to divide, to separate, and there's enough of that going on. We need to pull together, and I'm not saying we have division here, but we need to be careful that we don't allow it to creep into the church. We have to keep unity. And they were as one. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. And when the seventh month was come, and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. And so they gathered as one. After being exiled for 70 years, they realized they needed to honor God. They stopped their sin. They reestablished the sacrificial system. They rebuilt the temple, and they were in unison doing it. And look at verse 11, the spirit of victory. I love this, verse 11, the spirit of victory. And they sang together by course and praising and giving thanks unto the Lord because he is good. God is good all the time. He is good. Look, because he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. That word mercy is the richest Hebrew word you'll find. That word chesed means a love that won't let go. And so his mercy is good. It endures forever. And look what it says. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Do you know what? Jesus Christ laid the foundation for your temple and for my temple, and we ought to praise the Lord for that. The foundation's been laid. In the spirit of victory, I love it. They sang together and they praised the Lord. I like the psalmist said, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. God's salvation. Sometimes I get, you know, frustrated with things in my life and I have a good life, but the devil, he'll throw it in your face. Look at this. Look at this. Maybe he says to Mike, I've had a stroke. It's not fair. He says to different ones, it's not fair. I don't have the money I need. I, you know, I have this child and it's just not, and we get bogged down. We're looking at ourselves and our circumstances and we need to keep our eyes on the Lord and praise Him for our salvation and remember the joy we had when we we're first saved. And someone says sometimes, Pastor, I don't have the joy. I never had that great joy. I remember the peace and getting saved. But this guy down here, he has more joy. Let me tell you something. He's probably saved from deeper sin, but you can still have joy. Ask God to give it to you. Some of the greatest times I've had with the Lord have been in my car traveling back from meetings. And I'll play some music. And you know how the music stirs the soul, you know. And I'll start crying and praising the Lord and singing, and the Lord appreciates it. You wouldn't, but he does. It's just me and my Lord, and we're just having a great time. And sometimes I'm just thrilled just because the service went well or, or because just I feel his presence, and I just love to praise him, and we ought to praise him. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in the firm of His power. Praise Him for His mighty acts. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. When was the last time you praised Him for who He is and what He's done? He's worthy of our praise. Praise the Lord. But in all of this, there's always going to be opposition, right? Notice the adversary, chapter 4, and verse 1. 
<clears throat> I say adversary, there's adversaries. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the children of captivity builded the temple unto the Lord God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the chief of the fathers and said unto them, let us build with you. Now, notice here in verse 1, they're called adversaries. In verse 2, let us help you. In verse 1, we see Satan, don't we? We see the devil. You know what the word devil means? It's diabolos, but it means adversary. 1 Peter 5, 8. Better watch out because your adversary, Satan, is a roaring lion, seeks to devour you. He's our adversary. But in verse 2, we see the angel of light because he comes and says, let me, let us help you build the house of God. That's Satan, isn't it? Sometimes Satan will come into a church, one of the children of the devil, professes to be saved, great hypocrite, play acts, everybody thinks he's great. He rolls up his sleeves to go to work, and all he does is sabotage the work of God. And you're like, what is going on in our church? And you don't realize it, but the devil's right in the middle. Why? He's an angel of light. He can appear great, and 1 Corinthians 11 14 calls him an angel of light. He's just a troublemaker. Verse 4, the people of the land weakened at the hands of the people of Judah and troubled them in building. Who are these? These are the Samaritans. They were half Assyrian, half Jews. That's what the Samaritans were. Three great stories about Samaritans in their Bible, right? The good Samaritan. Isn't that a great story? The grateful Samaritan. I mean, there's just great stories. The Samaritans, however, were really trouble for Israel. They were Assyrians were ungodly people who married Jews, and they were compromising people who worshipped idols, not believing in Yahweh, not believing in God. They were a big problem. And so now they want to help with the house of God. And there was nothing good about them. God saved some. Jesus saved some. But they were a problem. And, uh, you know, they were big in the northern kingdom. In fact, the capital of the northern kingdom was Samaria. And so there were division, they were troublemakers, they wanted to help, but they really hindered. Not everybody who says, oh, I'm, I'm going to serve God and really help is really always a help, are they? You always have someone causing disunity. That's the work of the adversary. He wants to destroy the church and harm us, and he'll use people to do that. And what happened? Look at 424. The Bible says in 4.24, then ceased the work of the house of God at Jerusalem. You know, God wanted the house built, but it came to a halt because of the enemy. And we have to be wise. Do you know you have to be as wise as a serpent and as harmless as a dove? I mean, how many people are bitten by rattlesnakes that never, ever know they're there? They're hiding around the corner, and you walk by, and bam. I remember in Okinawa, we had the habu and mongoose fight. Habu was a poisonous viper. And once in a while, they bring a cobra in, and that was more expensive to see that. And the little mongoose, you see it, and you see this cobra or this habu, which is a poisonous viper on the islands, and you'd see this fight. It lasted maybe a minute or less, and you thought, I paid all that money, and it's already over. That mongoose would lure and, and get the, high, the, the snake to strike and it'd leap in the air and land on his head, rip his eyes and fangs out, and there's just blood everywhere. And then they 
took the habu and saved him. They didn't want him to eat and enjoy it because they needed him for the next fight. <laughs> but it was amazing to see that little habu. But I thought, wow. And I asked, how often does, it, does a mongoose get bit? He said, very seldom. Because they're aware of the power of the enemy. And they're on their toes watching for him. And the Bible said we're supposed to watch and pray that we enter not into temptation. We're supposed to realize the power of the enemy and be on guard because he's lurking, he's waiting to harm us. And it happens in church, it happens at home, it happens at work. Be on guard. The work ceased. Fifteen years later it picked up. It was completed in five years and dedicated, thank God. You know what? You are the work of God. I love this building. It's a great building. But you're the work of God. It's more important that I care about you growing and maturing in Christ than I care about new structures and new facilities and renovations. Well, I like that. I think, boy, it'd be great if we had money and we could put a fence behind our houses and you know, put a ball field out. We have 12 acres. Put a ball field out there and put a picnic area out to put some horseshoes out. I think all those things, of course. But you know what I pray for more than those things? You. Because you are the children of God. And you are the temples that make this place holy. When you walk in here, it's special as we all come in in unity as one and you worship one God and one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, the only mediator, the way, the truth, and the life, the I am of the Old Testament. We worship him as one. Do you work to build lives for God or do you work to build houses? Do you build for God? Do you give to God? Could have spent all day on preaching on giving, couldn't I? But I gave you a break. If you know what? When you don't give, you miss the blessing of God. I guarantee you, and Scripture guarantees you, that if you give to God's work, you'll never be forsaken. You won't be begging, under, begging for bread, and you won't be living under a bridge. Do you create unity or division in church? I don't know anybody causing division, but if you are, we'll call you out. Do you know, 1 Corinthians talks about church discipline, and we talk a lot about the things it says there, adultery and fornication and all those terrible things, but it also says discourse. Division is a serious sin in church. It says being a raller is serious. Being a loud mouth person that starts trouble with their big mouth is actually a, a sin that you can be disciplined for. So unity is important, and we strive for that. And we're all, we're all equal in the eyes of God. I mean, he loves us all the same. And we have someone coming to this church, maybe they're saved from a, a prostitution background. We need to realize they're as important to God as our pastor, our deacons, or anyone in our ministry. They're still God's child. And they're one with us. And so it matters how people live. Your testimony matters because it affects the whole. Like Achan, when they hid the treasure, the whole army was defeated and suffered. Sin will affect us. We need to be one and help each other grow and meet each other's needs. Do you praise him today in song and in testimony? Are you an ally? There were allies here.
givers and workers. Those that couldn't work gave. They gave because they couldn't work. But there's also adversaries. And there's angels of light who can wreak havoc in a family, in a church. You have them at work, don't you? Real nice and smile. You ever had a fair-weathered friend? You know what that expression means? Years ago, I heard that for the first time. I said, what does that mean? Oh, it's a friend who treats you nice when they want something. Your boy behind your back, they're no friend. <laughs> I've had them, you've had them, we've all had them. You work with them, don't you? Maybe they're in your neighborhood. Listen, I don't want to be that. I want to be a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. Amen. I want to be a friend that matters to my neighbor. I want to be a friend that's helpful when somebody needs me. I also want to be a friend that says, hey, you're wrong, because a true friend does speak up. Iron sharpens iron, and if we don't speak up when a brother's wrong, we're not a true friend. The Scripture teaches. Accountability. Accountability is lost. Uh, you know, out west, there's a ministry out there. The head of the camp ministry is also the pastor of both churches and the president of the board. Yet I said when I first went out there, this is an odd setup because there's no accountability for this person. We all need accountability. Thank God if you have a good wife, you're accountable. If you had parents, you had accountability. Right? Years ago, I got up and I was lying and saying it wasn't me getting in the cookies. And I got up. It was about 2 in the morning. I got up hungry. I was always hungry. I was skinny then. You believe that? And I got in the cookies and my sister came around the corner and said, Dan, all right, she came around the corner and said, what are you doing up? She said, what am I doing? What are you doing in the cookies at two in the morning? She still remembers that. Because I said, what are you doing? Like, what are you, you know. And it was me that was up eating the cookies. I hated my sister for that accountability. Because mom and dad found out I was the cookie monster. I said, I'm hungry. Well, you could eat something different than cookies at two in the morning. Oh, but they were good and they had raisins and oatmeal in them. And a lot of sugar. A lot of sugar. God wants us to be real. He wants us to be transparent. He wants us to have accountability. He wants us to have unity. He wants us to give. He wants us to work. And the most important work is building people in their lives. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you for your word today. We know, God, when you speak, it's always perfect for us, even though Sometimes we come to church and we don't see anything in the message that is wrong in our lives, but the Holy Spirit still points out something that's wrong in our lives. Oh, how you know each and every one of us. You know our comings and goings. You know our plans. You know our sin. You know our secret because you're God. And today you've exposed it in our lives, and I don't even know what it is myself in the lives of my people, but I know it's there. And we just pray you speak to them, Lord. Help us all to be real. Help us to be witnesses, to reach people in this community, to get sinners to come to the house of God. See more people saved. But first, get our lives in order. Be one, because you're one. There's one God.
and one mediator. Thank you for Jesus. Bless now in Jesus' name. Amen.